Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hey, everybody. Uh, We got a bit of a wonky one today. As usual, Catherine Rampill, op-ed uh, writer for the Washington Post, is with me. I always, always like her her pieces because they're usually about actual policy that affects people's lives. Uh, a lot of economics stuff, uh, stuff that affects your pocketbook, and uh, that's a very wide uh, range of of, uh, policy, of course, Uh, taxes, COVID relief, health care, child care, education, you know, stuff that affects your life. Uh, You know, not this week's take on how crazy Trump is uh, or how crazy his party is or whether Marco Rubio is uh, calling out Joe Biden uh, for characterizing Texas and Mississippi. They get rid of their mask mandate and characterizing as Neanderthal. And Rubio says that uh, Biden is showing a real anti-Neanderthal bias because uh, all Eurasians are 2% Neanderthal. Um, Good, good. Um, And, you know, the weird part is that Rubio, really, the, the party is very evangelical, and evangelicals believe in Adam and Eve. And um, I think Marco got in a little trouble with this, but he explained that Adam was 4% Neanderthal, but uh, it wasn't in his rib. So, so Eve, 0% Neanderthal. So uh, Cain and Abel, 2% Neanderthal. And that's why, I guess, uh, we all are 2% Neanderthal. Uh, but let me explain uh, some facts. Everybody listening to this, is at least 6% Mongol. No joke. Just no jokes on this, on, on the Al Franken podcast. Just facts. Uh, Genghis Khan, this is fact, had 100 concubines, and 100 of his sons each had 100 concubines. So everybody, you're a lot more Mongol than Elizabeth Warren is a Cherokee. And by the way, she would be the president today if she had taken my advice and called Trump poke a porn star. She'd be the president. Uh, But back to uh, important stuff, voting rights. Uh, Republicans uh, know they can't actually win elections (laughs) unless uh, they suppress votes. And they have... Now, nationwide, I think it's over 250 uh, state legislature voting bills around the nation. And now the issue is before the Supreme Court. And Arizona has this law where if you cast a vote in the wrong precinct, it can be disqualified. And that uh, policy is being challenged by the Democratic Party, saying that uh, it's targeted at 
minorities who uh, more often have their voting location moved uh, much more often than affluent white people in Arizona, who, by the way, are allowed to vote uh, at their country club while having a Tom Collins uh, in the booth. Anyway, this Republican election lawyer, uh, Michael Carvin, was before the Supreme Court, and uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett asked him about uh, this out-of-precinct ballot disqualification thing. you got to listen to this exchange. What's the interest of the Arizona RNC here in keeping, say, the uh, out-of-precinct voter ballot disqualification rules on the books? Because it puts us at a competitive disadvantage relative to Democrats. Politics is a zero-sum game. Now, he's supposed to be making a legal argument, something along the lines of, uh, well, uh, it prevents voting fraud. That's why we have this law. But no, he just says the Arizona Republican Party's interest is that uh, it gives us a competitive advantage. It's a zero-sum game. Huh? You're, you're, you're a Republican, aren't you, Amy Colbert? <laughs> okay. So who is this guy, Michael Carvin? Well, he is a well-established, long-time election lawyer for Republicans, which means he's a bad guy. And so I, I know who he is because I was on the Judiciary Committee, and he testified a number of times on voting rights after Shelby County decision, which preclearance in the Voting Rights Act was taken out, meaning that it used to be, that until this, the federal government if, if a locality that had been under the Voting Rights Act changed their rules, it had to be reviewed, it had to be cleared by the Justice Department. John Roberts made this decision that took that out, changed everything. Now we were trying in 2013 to restore that. And so we had a hearing, and Ted Cruz had just gotten to the Senate, and I was trying to figure out what kind of asshole Ted Cruz was, because I was going, like, is he a Texas asshole? What is he? Just a right-wing asshole? What is he? So, anyway, uh, here, here's, here's uh, not an exchange, but here's Ted. Uh, Ted's been called on, and he talks to Michael Carvin, uh, his long acquaintance. I'd like to thank all three witnesses for being here and testifying today. Um, I want to ask a couple of questions of Mr. Carvin, and and let me say at the outset, you and I have known each other a long, long time. Uh, Indeed, my first job as a practicing lawyer was working for you in in a very small law firm, and so uh, I commit two things. Number one, to tell no tales from those days. (laughs) Okay, I got it. You're a Harvard asshole. I will tell no tales. My God. So what does that mean? I, I will tell no tale. Did they, uh, okay, so they got drunk. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this is like October 2000. And they got really drunk and uh, hijacked a pickup truck and went around uh, this town in New Jersey picking up all the Gore Lieberman signs. <laughs> and... And uh, then put him in a bonfire and uh, got arrested. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I will tell no tales. Remember, we got drunk and then I took a crap on the golf course. And <laughs> what, is, what is, I will tell no tales. What a jerk.
Okay. And speaking of jerks, uh, Ron Johnson uh, made the uh, Senate clerks read uh, the COVID relief bill, uh, 10 hours, I guess it was. And think about how much floor time the Senate could have reclaimed if Ron Johnson had only learned how to read. Anyway, let's go to Catherine uh, Rampell. It's, uh, this is going to be a wonky one and a great one, both for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. So you write a lot about economics. Yeah, I, I would say most of my work is something in the general economy, economic policy space. But uh, economics is also sort of like an imperialistic discipline and kind of everything falls under its purview, you know, so I write about healthcare and I write about taxes and I write about trade and do any of those have anything to do with the economy? They do. They do. <laughs> they do. They do. Oh. I think they do. So, so I would, I would call that, you know, also sort of under the broad umbrella of, of economic policy. Obviously easy to write about economic policy now in terms of what the new administration, the Biden administration uh, wants to do. And obviously, it's an in an entirely different place from the, from the Trump administration. Yes. Uh, one upside of this administration is that they appear to actually be interested in consulting with experts on various issues, including economic policy, as opposed to the predecessor, the Trump administration, which was sort of, you know, shaping economic policy decisions around, you know, whatever Trump had to eat that day. Um, his gut. His gut, exactly. Um, so there was plenty of material for me to cover then. Um, mostly it was writing about why such and such a trade idea is a dumb idea or why um, 
the effort to sabotage Obamacare was, you know, going to lead to a lot of people losing health insurance rather than gaining health insurance, despite what Trump had said. So the, the material now that I have to work with is a little bit more like, well, what's the best way to do X, Y, or Z policy <laughs> rather than like, no, this thing is dumb. And here's why it's completely the wrong approach. Uh, right now we have the uh, COVID-19 $1.9 trillion uh, stimulus package, and most of it is going to go through reconciliation, right? That is my understanding, that they're trying to get as much of it through on a reconciliation, you know, basically a party line vote as they can because Republicans have declined to play ball. Reconciliation is a way in which you can pass legislation with 50 or 51 votes with the vice president if you only have 50. Uh, we did the ACA through that. Uh, they did their tax cut in 17 that way. Um, it has to do with budget stuff. Can you yeah, put a finer I, point on that? I will say my recollection on the ACA is a little bit different than yours. I thought that the ACA itself did not go through reconciliation. It was some sort of follow-on bill that had technical corrections or something that did, but I may be wrong. You're right. What happened was complicated. We passed the ACA uh, with 60 votes, but then uh, Scott Brown won in Massachusetts. Right. And uh, so now we had 59. So the House had to pass exactly what we had passed with 60 votes. But then they had some of their own ideas that they put in a separate piece of legislation. And now we had to vote for that. We had to vote for that exact thing. And so we had an all-nighter where they were putting in amendments like that we couldn't vote for. So it'd be like, I think Tom Coburn put an amendment forward, which was, you can't give sex offenders in prison Viagra. Okay. And we had to vote against that. You know, we had to say, no, sex offenders in prison should be able to get Viagra paid for by the ACA. Was this a real <laughs> amendment or are you joking? I'm not joking. Oh, my goodness. That was I don't remember a real, that one. Yeah, it was like, okay, we're going to make you vote for the stuff we can make yes. you ads right. on, right? <laughs> <laughs> but reconciliation basically has anything to do with budget. Right. And I don't know what a fi what a finer point to put on that is. Yeah, you? I mean, well, it's, a, it's a separate mechanism for getting bills through that means that you don't have to get um, well, you, you can you can pass it, as you said, with only a majority without the risk of a filibuster. But you only have this special process available to you if you're trying to get legislation through that has budgetary impacts. And the budgetary impacts are not supposed to be incidental. So there could be things that are policies that mostly are not related to the budget, but they do affect, you know, how many tax revenues or whatever come in. So we could pass... We could pass a higher uh, $15 an hour right. minimum wage through reconciliation. That is a better reflection of probably how he delivered that message than I did. Well, let's go willy-nilly over things. Let, let, let me ask you about the minimum wage. Part of the issue is how long that would take to kick in. It would do be gradual, right? It would be over, what, four years is what this bill is talking about? Is that it's, right? I think it's either four or five, but some, somewhere on that time frame. So obviously there's going to be a difference between the $15 an hour minimum wage in New York, and, or especially in New York City or in Seattle, uh, versus West Virginia, which is why uh, we have Joe Manchin, I believe, against the 15 
dollar an hour minimum wage. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. There is a concern that in places with a lower cost of living where people are making lower wages for various reasons, but including the fact that it's a lower cost of living, um, if you hike their wages too much too quickly, then the way businesses will respond is just to say, okay, we'll just hire fewer people. Okay, but it's it's been seven twenty five an hour for a long time now, and most states or many many states have raised it. Minnesota certainly has, uh, New York obviously uh, has, uh, Washington has, and then also there are accommodations for sizes of business, et cetera, et cetera. And those are things you can do on a federal level, right? Say, okay, a, a company that only has four employees or something like that. Yeah, I, I think in theory you could do that. I mean, that's how other kinds of regulations work, right? Like the FMLA, which provides for family leave, guaranteed family leave, has exemptions based on size. Yeah, of well, I think in like state that. minimum wage one, uh, mm-hmm. rules, it also does, and yeah. has there can even be re- regional uh, accommodations within within states. It is certainly theoretically possible that you could construct a minimum wage that is indexed to the local cost of living. And that has been proposed. That's not what's being discussed right now in terms of what's in this reconciliation bill, but that's certainly possible. Now, there are people who don't like that idea because they think that the reason why wages are low in places like West Virginia or Mississippi or Arkansas is not related to the cost of living necessarily, but, you know, sort of structural economic issues and that you're you're continuing to keep Slavery, yeah, slavery, yeah, for example, in yeah. Arkansas and Mississippi. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, the, the, that's the counter argument. I, I know, mm-hmm. but you, seven twenty-five anywhere. Yes, <laughs> it doesn't work. And when you're talking about paying people only seven twenty-five an hour, that's that's poverty wages. That's it's impossible. I agree to make a living. I agree. I think that particularly on people who are sort of left of center, and I broadly fall into that category. There's widespread agreement about the need to increase the minimum wage. The debate is more about how quickly, to what level. Um, I, I think Republicans are more likely to say, or conservatives are more likely to say, we sh- we just shouldn't have a minimum wage, or we, or we shouldn't raise it, or or what have you. Whereas I think the debate on the on the left is more about how do you do it and how do you balance these various risks about unintentionally putting people out of work if you think that the way employers will respond is to just hire fewer people. And look, that that could happen. And there are a lot of kind of question marks about how raising the, the minimum wage n- now in particular would be would be implemented by by businesses, right? Because already you have a lot of lower paying jobs on layoff right now, if you look at, because of the pandemic, because of the recession, mm-hmm. you know, the, the kinds of jobs that have been displaced are predominantly lower wage jobs. And how much are businesses retooling and restructuring to kind of eliminate those jobs already? Because, you know, by automating them, for example. And there's already kind of this long run trend to automate particularly lower wage work the pandemic may have accelerated that. And what happens if you also simultaneously make those kinds of workers more expensive to hire back? But we don't know. We really don't know. (laughs) Um, And I think that's one of the big question marks about this whole proposal is that it is 
higher risk than other efforts to other past times the minimum wage has been raised because it is a, a bigger increase because current economic circumstances are weird but the economists like generally cannot even agree what happened in the past on minimum wage increases you talk to to two people who both say that they studied the minimum wage and they will give you a completely different summary of what the research says to date. You know, in some places, Mm -hmm. in some places, it actually increases jobs because suddenly these workers have more money to spend. And of course, people at the lower end, when they get more money, they spend it. Yes. So that happened in Seattle, right? Didn't, didn't uh, employment go up? Um, I'm trying to remember what happened in Seattle. I think that could be the case. Um, you know, by the way, I looked this up. Mm-hmm. Well, well uh, here, here's a group who's against any minimum wage, the Proud Boys. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm not sure that's groups. my biggest objection to the Proud Boys, but I'm glad I can add that to the tally. Um, yeah. I mean, there are other reasons why raising the minimum wage might also increase employment. There's this very famous study that gets taught in every Econ 101 class uh, by Alan Kruger, who I worked for as an undergrad many years ago, and David Card, where they found that raising the minimum wage, they looked at like New Jersey versus Pennsylvania. I forget which state actually raised it. One of them did, one of them didn't. They found that the one that raised it had higher employment. And it was partly because, you know, people were more likely to to stick with those jobs. Um, But the evidence is really mixed on on this issue. And we just, it's it's hard to say what's going to happen. Again, it may be a risk worth taking and and whatever negative employment consequences there might be, you could maybe address through other means. I, I think that not taking the, not doing this is, would be a Shonda, uh, as we say. I mean, because uh, listen, the, the gaps in wealth and income in this country, people need to be able to, to live. I mean, there are other ways also to increase people's living standards, not just through raising their wages, right? You could do all sorts of post-tax things. Um, child care credits child care, or the like EITC. that, which is on the table right now. Yep. Or an income tax credit, yep. as you were saying. Yep. And um, the advantage of some of those kinds of things, like the earned income tax credit, is that they can account for the fact that a worker might have children or not have children. And so maybe maybe the income that, that a person who has kids needs to have should be higher than that for someone who's a single par- a single person. And the minimum wage doesn't get adjusted for for family structure, right? Right. And as you as it's funny as you went through this, th- this is an example of what you get in in one of Catherine's op-eds, which is you actually look at how these things really work. <laughs> and so it's that's why I always read your almost always read uh, your op-eds because I learn something Anyway, so right now we have this uh, $1.9 trillion COVID relief package that, uh, again, there were, it looks like most of it, all of it, maybe, going to go through reconciliation. Now, the, quote, moderate Republicans, 10 of them met in the White House uh, with Biden a few weeks ago to discuss their $0.6 <laughs> trillion stimulus package. Uh, some of those uh, senators were not very moderate, to say the least. It's amazing how, and you wrote a column on this, how uh, suddenly when there's a Democratic president, 
They care about deficits. They pretend to care about deficits. Is, oh, that's what I meant. That's what I meant. <laughs> is how I would put it. Yeah, I, we saw this when Obama became president, right? Um, in the big time in the years prior to his presidency, when the economy was doing well, they were happy to spend as much money as possible on tax cuts that did not pay for themselves, by the way, and didn't seem to mind that that increased the deficit and long-term debt. And yet when the economy was in the toilet and a Democrat was in the White House, suddenly the fiscal hawks come back and they decide that it's very worrisome that the debt is so high and we're going to have hyperinflation and we need to pull back on federal spending. They were suddenly very concerned about deficits. And then the same thing happened again um, the last few years. Trump comes into the White House and they are happy to spill trillions of dollars of red ink on not just tax cuts, by the way, but higher spending. I think pre-COVID, so the first three years of Trump's presidency, I forget the exact number, but there was some estimate that deficits had gone up something like a, an additional $4 trillion um, above and beyond what they had been projected to do absent legislative changes made under Trump's leadership. They, they passed, of course, a huge tax cut in 2017 uh, through reconciliation. I remember the floor manager was Tim Scott. And I went up to him, and he had been this deficit hawk. <laughs> and I said to him, Tim, you know, this is uh, CBO, and it's your CBO. It's Congressional Budget Office, and it was, it was, a major, uh, it was appointed by McConnell and, and uh, Boehner. They say this is going to add $1.9 trillion to the deficit. He goes, no, because of, remember this, dynamic scoring. Yeah. You want to explain dynamic scoring to our listeners? Sure. So dynamic scoring is basically the idea that you account for the growth effects of some proposal when you're calculating how much it costs. So maybe your tax cut doesn't look quite as expensive because it supercharges the economy and um, tax rates might be lower, but people are making more money because the economy is growing faster their incomes are up more, and therefore they end up paying more in taxes just at a lower rate. When you take into all that into account, the dynamic score might show that it costs less than the so or nothing or nothing. To, but nobody said it costs. I mean, well, nobody, nobody independent well, and respectful. <laughs> no, but it wasn't just the CBO. I mean, you said that the, you said the CBO. But it wasn't just CBO. Basically, every independent credible analysts that you can think of from the IMF to, um, you know, various Wall Street economists, um, the Tax Policy Center, uh, which is a, you know, independent think tank, the Penn Wharton budget model, the Tax Foundation, which was for the tax cut. It's like a sort of a more conservative think tank that, that focuses on taxes. None of them said the tax cuts paid for themselves. They had, you know, slightly different estimates of how much additional growth you might get and you might get a little bit, but none of them said that the tax cuts paid for themselves. The only people who asserted that were the people who really wanted the bill to go through, contrary to all of the evidence. And all the Republicans who had been really, 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 really just been really concerned about deficits under Obama. Now, suddenly this was going to pay for itself. Yeah. I mean, what was what was interesting to me was that if this was really such a great 
overhaul of the tax code, why not defend it on the merits? You know, like why pretend that this thing costs nothing as they did, despite, again, every analyst on earth saying, no, it's going to cost quite a lot, maybe $2 trillion. Why not say like, okay, we know this is going to increase the deficit, but we don't care. We think it's worthwhile anyway, because blah, 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 free enterprise. I don't know. Why lie about it if this thing is really such a great idea? And it wasn't just on the cost of the bill. They also claimed all sorts of other things, you know, like it was going to raise Trump's taxes. I remember he made some comment about that and that this was a middle class tax cut. Our no. predom- you know, and there were tax cuts for the middle class, but they were temporary, whereas the corporate tax cuts were permanent. Anyway, you know, like, why not just defend it based on what it actually does rather than creating this al- alternative fantasy version? And speaking of uh, free enterprise, uh, so I had this argument with uh, Tim, and he at one point told me that um, government doesn't create jobs. But, and I went, what? And then, and then I said, government has never created jobs. Government doesn't create jobs. And I pointed out that we had government jobs, he, he and I. <laughs> Inconvenient and, fact. And, <laughs> yeah. And then I said, have you heard of the Erie Canal and the interstate highway system and rural electrification, the internet? And then he made this, he said, well, it doesn't create net jobs. <laughs> because if, if the private sector had been able to invest that money, they would have done it more efficiently. And this stuff would have happened. We would have put a man on the moon by the, during the 20s, 1920s. Uh, it would have been great to see a, um, you know, a, a man on the moon doing the Charleston in a weightless environment. Without prohibition, presumably. Yeah, we wouldn't have had prohibition. That was government's. That was a bad thing the government did. <laughs> anyway. Let's get more sort of philosophical. Paul Wellstone used to say, uh, we all do better when we all do better. How is that true? As I understand that aphorism, um, or whatever you want to call it, you know, it's the idea that the world is not a zero-sum game, or doesn't need to be. And if you grow the size of the economic pie, then everyone can get a a bigger piece. Uh, And I think to some extent, that is true. You know, I think it was pretty unhelpful the way that the past administration characterized every economic transaction as zero sum on on trade amongst other things. You know, that there are there are policies that are win-win that that can lift up the poor and help grow the overall economy as well and you know, maybe not hurt the rich that much or maybe the rich get kind of warm and fuzzy feelings from knowing that the the poor are lifted up. I don't know. Well, uh, one way I put it is when a bridge collapses, a Mercedes falls as fast as a Hyundai. It's a nice metaphor. I don't know that that's always true. Mercedes falls slower? (laughs) (laughs) I just mean, you look at like the economic collapse of the past year and the economy overall is not doing great, but people who are well off are doing pretty well. They yeah. haven't lost jobs. Their 401ks are up. If they own a home, their housing values have probably risen, depending on where they are. But, you know, housing values are generally up. So it's not always true that, you know, the, the rising tide lifts all boats. Um, I heard some variant on this exp- on this expression that it's like there, you know, that there are some some people who are on stilts in the middle of the ocean and they're fine. <laughs> and and the, the little guys in the little boats have capsized. Well, this has this has been a pandemic. This has been this is not normal, yes. right? 
This isn't your normal uh, economic rules. And obviously, people who can do their work virtually, they can do their work virtually. And then there are a lot of people who have lost their jobs because of this. And those people tend to be uh, on the lower end. Right. And their people have been unemployed throughout this whole thing. We've seen, you know, a food insecurity triple. Uh, we, we've handled this badly. <laughs> I mean, how have we handled this as a society versus some other countries? Well, it depends on what you mean by this, right? If you look at the if you look at how many people have died, we've handled it really, really badly. If you look at how much money we've spent, we're actually more generous than a lot of other developed countries have been, like as a percent of GDP. So uh, on that level, we have provided a lot of fiscal relief. Now, whether it was well-designed fiscal relief is a separate question, but at the very least, we've kind of turned on the spigot and to, to an extent- We did for a while. We did, for we a did while. at the beginning. Yeah, we did at the and beginning. And then there was a long gap there. Right. And so it wasn't consistent, but early on, we spent a lot of money and- you know, to Congress's credit, there was bipartisan support for that. Now, maybe that's because there was a Republican in the White House. But um, in any event, that that was a good thing. And I, I think particularly relative to what happened during the Great Recession, that was an improvement. The, I think one of the big takeaways from the response to the Great Recession was that the federal government didn't spend enough. That they were too concerned about budgets. So I think that's an improvement. But as I said, like not all of the pieces of that fiscal relief have been super well designed. And some of that is not the federal government's fault. Some of that is the state's fault. So like one area where there has been massive disappointment is the unemployment insurance system. The federal government um, has allocated a lot of money to expanding unemployment benefits in ways that are generally good. Uh, you know, making it more available to people who are, who would not normally be covered by the system, gig workers, Uber drivers, et cetera, and for a while expanding the value of those benefits. And then that lapsed and now it's back again, at least through mid-March. And that's good, but the states are actually administering this program and almost all of the systems in place, you know, the 50 plus systems, when you include territories in DC, are pretty broken. What, what's behind that? Is, is that, do they have the resources to administer them or is it just dysfunction? It's kind of a combination of things. So the technology is really, really old in a lot of states. Like the systems, like the, the literal technological infrastructure is just really old and there still aren't people, there aren't that many people around who can reprogram it. So that, who still speak or whatever, know this language. Like DOS. So that was slow. They didn't have enough people on staff necessarily to account for like the surge in claims. And then there were also some states that deliberately prior to the pandemic had made it really hard to file for unemployment. Like Florida is a good example where they just made it such a pain in the butt to document your work and, you know, file all of the the necessary paperwork and everything else to prove that you were eligible that almost nobody could prove it. And this was a feature, not a bug, because right. Republicans in the state wanted to cut the unemployment insurance system. And one way you can do that is just by adding more administrative burden. This is kind of a Republican strategy on a lot of different policies, not just unemployment insurance, and, you know, Medicaid work requirements, food stamps. That's a red state 
a problem or a strategy. Yeah, right? um, predominantly. And mm-hmm. the, the Trump administration was also on board with this, again, with some of these other kinds of programs like food stamps. And, and Medicaid work requirements. So there are states that like deliberately made it really <laughs> difficult for people to get unemployment insurance and then not realizing that at some point that might be politically a bad idea. I think DeSantis, the governor of Florida, has even said something to that effect you know, within the last few months. Like, yeah, this was designed to not work. And now we realize that's a problem. So we're we're trying to fix it. How did he how did he do that? Was did <laughs> How well, did that happen? I think the the <laughs> political calculus changed, right? When the economy okay. is good and it's only uh, a relatively small share of your population that needs to file for benefits, unemployment benefits, and maybe it's like predominantly minorities or low income workers or somebody, some group that you don't think is going to vote for you anyway, I'll put it that way, then mm. maybe it's desirable to make it harder for them to get unemployment. Now that it affects a, you know, a huge share of the population, including some of your own voters, maybe you realize, hmm, it would be helpful if our government services were functional. Yeah, there, there's one thing to say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to make this much more functional. But to say, you know what? We deliberately made it not work. You know why? Because uh, the people receiving it basically were people of color. And, you know, we're racist. Well, he did, oh, did I say that? He didn't explicitly <laughs> say that, but I think that was, you could reasonably read that as the subtext. I'll put it that way. Okay. Um, well, let's talk about race and economics. John Kennedy kept asking Merrick Garland, uh, do you think there's uh, systemic racism? <laughs> and and, uh, and Garland said, yeah. <laughs> and, and he couldn't get it through his head, it seemed what that meant. Boy, in our economy, there's systemic racism, you know, like just in housing, for example. You know, if you think about like after this happened in George Floyd's murder and then the follow on, and we looked at Minneapolis, which you think of as one of the most progressive cities in the country. We have a terrible history on that. Redlining and such, you know, after World War II, the black GIs came back and they're redlined. And your source of wealth in this country is your house, right? For a lot of people, yeah. Yeah, especially for a lot of people who aren't wealthy, who aren't in the stock market, you know. <laughs> um, that is your your main source of wealth. Well, if you can't buy a house because you're redlined, then you can't accumulate that wealth. Yeah. And I, I think the one kind of underappreciated consequence of that is the, the compounding effect, right, of underinvestment in people of color over generations. So that even if the even if you get rid of redlining today, um, there are still families that missed out generation after generation on the accumulating wealth. And this is true not just for housing, right? Yeah. Going to a good school, have, you know, accumulating the human ha- capital to get a, a high paying job and that so that you can then turn around and invest in your own kids and make sure that they go to a good school and go to college and they get a good job. There's sort of a compounding effect of all of this. And I think that gets missed a little bit in some of these discussions. It's like, well, what's the big deal? We don't allow redlining anymore. Now, there are some ways in in which it could still happen inadvertently through algorithms that have some sort of 
disparate racial impact, even if they're not intended to, on who's worthy of a loan, for example, or through implicit bias or or <laughs> explicit bias. But even if somehow you could wave a magic wand and like reduce any kind of existing racist policies today, that's still not going to make up for the generations of compounding underinvestment in particular populations, including Black people, over the last hundred, several hundred years, in fact. And I think politicians are not necessarily good at thinking about that because it's it's a complicated question. Well, some politicians are good at understanding complicate, complicated <laughs> issues. Some of us. Uh-huh. Are, Sorry, I don't mean to uh, stereotype. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, I mean, this, this goes to a much, I don't know if you want to open this can of worms, but you know, about things like slavery reparations, um, the argument against is, well, that was a long time ago and nobody around today is directly responsible for it, but it's like, yeah, but how, what's the legacy of the dehumanization objectification of these people a couple of hundred years ago? And then how much did that result in, weighing down their kids and their kids' kids and their kids' kids' kids, et cetera. Um, not to mention, of course, that... My family was in Poland at that time. Right. And I think that's the <laughs> response that you get. And I think the, the more compelling argument about these kinds of things is like, well... Don't look at me. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, it's not an, it's not an equal playing field today. And what do you do about that? And that largely yep. has to do with choices that we made in the past that we need to reckon with. Yeah, and it's still, you know, today they evaluate houses that are in black neighborhoods. They they still value them less than in white neighborhoods. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. I'm with Catherine Rampell, and when we return, we'll be with Catherine Rampell. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. We're back with Catherine Rampell, op-ed writer for the Washington Post. Well, let's t- talk about uh, health care then, because, uh, you know, as you pointed out, that's an economic issue. It was int- I-, I think I heard you talk about Medicare for All 
And uh, I think you and I had sort of the same take on it, which is, or at least my take was, every other developed country has universal health care. All of them have some private insurance. Yeah, I mean, I think what people mean when they say Medicare for all is a little fuzzy. And for some people, that just means, and part of the reason it pulls really well, <laughs> is it just means everybody has the option to have Medicare or some other. Oh, yeah, the public option, which we should have adopted, except for Joe Lieberman nixed that. Yeah, actually. Yeah, you. I think you and I are in agreement on that. Some people think Medicare for all means you do away with private insurance entirely. And if you look at the specific proposal that Bernie Sanders introduced, you know, the specific legislation under that Bernie Sanders introduced that is called the Medicare for all bill or something to that effect. Not only does it do away with private insurance, it also has what would become the most generous public insurance anywhere on the planet. Yeah. He says that you cover the stuff, for example, about 70% of Canadians have some form of augmented private insurance. But he says, well, we'll cover that. We'll cover eyeglasses. We'll cover right. hearing. So so it's a little bit of an unfair comparison to say, oh, every other country does this. When, as you point out, every country does something to make sure that there, or every other developed country anyway, does something to make sure that there is universal coverage, but they don't necessarily say everybody has to get public health insurance. They don't say that public health insurance has to cover every possible medical need. No, but they all do it, as Bernie would say. They all do it you know, at half the cost. And they do just as good a job, if not better. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the third rail of all of this is that they they do it cheaper than we do, largely because they pay providers a lot less than we do. Doctors and hospitals make more money here than they do in other parts of the world. And you can argue, maybe they deserve it. You know, maybe their quality of care is better. Maybe their you know, doctors outside options to go onto Wall Street or something are so much better paid that you have to compensate them. Um, higher here than in Canada or Germany or wherever in order to attract people to the profession. I don't know, but just simply giving everyone public health insurance without reckoning with the fact that we pay <laughs> a lot more for care. And not, pharmaceuticals, and look. pharmaceuticals as well, yep. Pharmaceuticals are, you know, a, a, a minority a fraction of what we spend on health care. Um, but yes, we also pay a lot more for pharma. No, pharma gets away with murder. When Bernie would say, like, the health insurance companies and and uh, pharmaceuticals between them make $100 billion a year, $75 billion of that in profit was pharmaceuticals. And we pay, in this country, they pay about 30% of what we pay in other countries. Yeah, but i drugs that we manufacture. Yeah. Uh, you know, and you could try to tackle that problem, but... Doing that alone is still not going to get us in line with what other countries spend on healthcare. If you don't also give all of these doctors and hospitals and outpatient surgery centers and everything else a haircut, which is a really politically difficult thing to do. And again, like you can argue, maybe that's not the right thing to do. But to just hand wave away those additional costs, I think is irresponsible. You can make an argument for we should be spending a lot more. And here, you know, on these services, and here's why. But just pretending it's going to magically lower the cost of spending without accounting for like the higher prices that we pay for all of these things, and again, not just drugs, I, I think is is a bit misleading, at the very least. Oh, you know, the, the the option that that we have in terms of forming 
you know, an accountable care organization where a whole medical group covers a whole bunch of people and gets paid to keep them healthy because uh, we have sick care in this country and not really health care, right? Look, there are a lot of ways that you could try to bring down the price of care. And one way is to maybe move away from fee-for-service, where you pay for every Band-Aid or you know, every, every line item on the bill, um, as opposed to paying- And some transparency in, in, in those, that billing. Yeah, hospital, that would be helpful so. too, um, which mm-hmm. for, for some reason is also a very difficult project. But to, to his credit, Trump actually did try to do- um, I'm not sure how successful it was, but that was something that they were interested in. Normally, Trump's follow-through wasn't so great. In any event, um, but you could move away from fee-for-service to some sort of more capitated payment system where you get paid by the patient, or you get paid by the diagnosis, or something like that. Or you get paid for covering a group, a large group, and if you keep people healthy, you make the extra money. <laughs> That's yeah. You know, accountable care organizations, right? Yeah. That was part of the bill. Th- that was part of the ACA. My understanding is that the cost savings that resulted from that ended up being a little disappointing. I don't remember why. Well, it's complicated. It depends where. Uh, for example, they did that. Uh, remember Atul Gawande did this article? McAllen. Yep, McAllen, Texas. In McAllen, they actually put together an accountable care organization for Medicare. That, that's who he was looking at, right? Gawande was comparing the cost of the average Medicare patient in McAllen with El Paso. <laughs> and in McAllen, all the doctors owned the imaging machines. They had all kinds of bad practices. But they started having an accountable care organization, and it, it did go down significantly. So I've, I've seen that work. And, you know, healthcare costs less uh, in places that do it well. Yeah. Although, like I said, I mean, the, the main difference in how much we spend relative to other countries is not about how much healthcare we consume, but rather the prices for it, um, you know, in terms of like how many x-rays get done per year or appendectomies or, or whatever, our prices tend to be higher. And figuring out how to get those costs under control is difficult, particularly since my cost savings are somebody else's haircut, you know? And somebody's going to lose out on that, that additional income from Medicare. Not necessarily. If, if an accountable care organization is taking care of, say, I don't know, 2,000 people and they keep them healthier, everybody it's going to be better for everybody and you save money. Because, see, the difference between sick care and health care is that doctors who are treating people with diabetes, they would not get paid until they lopped their foot off. That, that's when they got their big payout, as opposed to keeping them healthy. And so if you get the same amount of money for keeping them healthy versus only getting paid when you lop their foot off, you actually get more money and people stay healthier. It's like win-win. Yeah, I agree. Those are better incentives to, to find ways to not cut someone's foot off. <laughs> Generally a, a good goal for a... Oh, good. His foot's got to come off. N- not a controversial proposition there. I shouldn't probably have Twinkies in the waiting room <laughs> at my diabetes practice, but it helps. The bottom line. <laughs> okay, uh, let's. Uh, I covered that. Let's talk about education. Uh, you look at that a lot, I know. Again, class and race. 
what can we do? I mean, how should we approach this? This is a very broad question. I was going to (laughs) say, how do we approach education in general? Yeah, that's a big question. Yes, I would say, is first of all, is education important? Yes. Yes or no? Yes, education. Education Ding, 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 ding. That's right. I got it right. Good. (laughs) Are Are there educational divides by class and race? Absolutely. And they are getting worse in this pandemic. Early childhood, good idea. Uh, Among the best ideas. This is one of these, you know, I was making fun of Republicans for claiming that tax cuts pay for themselves. This is actually an idea that does pay for itself. Somebody wanted a a Nobel Prize winner, basically won for some research related to this idea that this is among the best bangs for the buck that you can get in government spending. If you invest in kids early, they will have higher earnings later on. And um, will therefore be less likely to need government services. They'll be more likely to have higher earnings and pay higher taxes as a result. So yes, this is a, a great, great idea. And not only because of its benefits to the kids, but obviously of its benefits to the parents. You know, I think you should think of early childhood, high quality early childhood education, pre-K, whatever you want to call it, as both um, an investment in the kids and a work support for the parents. You know how they do it in Norway? In Norway, (laughs) okay, in Norway, the first year of a child's existence, birth to one, the parents get between them a year (laughs) of leave, (laughs) paid leave, a year. And uh, they capitate it at nine months for, uh, you only get nine months if one parent does it. So that incentivizes the other to take at least three, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are there are a lot of countries that do this daddy quota design now. Or mommy. And it does seem to have increased how much leave dads take. Okay, and then, then at one, they go into early childhood and they have great early childhood teachers or whatever you want to call them. They stay in, in that till they're six. They have no kindergarten. Then they go to first grade. We're, we're kind of screwed up, right? Yeah, we do not invest enough in young children, in children in general, but in young children, especially where, again, the the return on investment is huge. I mean, not to mention like the humanitarian, <laughs> uh, the nice humanitarian <laughs> consequences of. Oh, that. Yeah. But it like just that, in cold uh-huh. dollars and cents, cost benefit analysis. This is a. Okay, I like that better. This is but a let me write that money. other thing down. What is that called? Humanitarian? Yeah. Humanitarian. Okay. Uh, that's good. Um, <laughs> so red states versus blue states, basically different approaches, right? Say in general. Uh, I mean, yes and no. It's like it's a little bit hard to to do a broad brush comparison, right? Because every state has its own weird idiosyncrasies, and you know, California, a blue state, is different from Illinois, and has also a blue state, and they have different different policies and different okay. pressures. So. All right. I, I think okay. it's more helpful to talk about like particular policies, like blue states are more likely to have expanded Medicaid, for example, which I think is a good idea. And it's very confusing to me that there are a bunch of red states that have continued to basically reject, re- re- reject free money, <laughs> essentially. You know, that's what it is. You know what? The last five states to pass by referendum... Medicaid expansion, Idaho, <laughs> Nebraska, uh, Utah, 
uh, Oklahoma and Missouri. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense because the red states have been the holdouts. So if anybody's opting in at this point, they're probably going to be red states. By, by referendum. And in uh, 2017, the Republican plan was to just cut Medicaid expansion. And when I went to the reddest areas of Minnesota to have town halls in hospitals, people were going nuts. Did you watch the uh, Coney Bearer hearings? Uh, some of them, not the whole thing. You know, uh, Lindsey Graham opened up by saying, like, we get less money from the government for Medicaid. <laughs> like, yeah, because you chose not to. Right. It's free money. <laughs> and it's weird because it's popular, even among Republicans. It's so popular. Oh, yeah. Especially among Republicans who live in red areas. You know why? Because rural hospitals were holding the bag when someone would come in who wasn't insured to an emergency room. So there was all this uncompensated care. And because there was un uncompensated care, they had to eat it. The hospital had to eat it. Now all these people <laughs> are covered by Medicaid expansion. So suddenly they were awash in money in Minnesota and in other states. And what did they, could they do? They could hire more nurses and doctors and technicians and technology. And they expanded their scope of practice. And they suddenly became the largest employer in the county. And everyone friggin' loved it. And they went nuts. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's been a boon to rural hospitals and medical practices. And, you know, the people who get the coverage are pretty happy with it, too. I remember there, there was um, a focus group of some kind done by the Kaiser Family Foundation a few years ago where they asked, I'm trying to, I think it was Trump voters specifically, where they asked them like what they thought about Medicaid and they didn't want to cut Medicaid. They wanted it, you know, despite, you know, the sort of, I don't know, um, stereotype that Republicans are interested in less and less government. They were like, no, I just want to be on Medicaid myself. I'm jealous of the fact that my neighbor gets this health care coverage that I don't and that I'm stuck with these bigger bills. Hence the public option. Yeah. <laughs> but what, what was freaking me out in on the road to 2020 election was the idea of we won in 18 on health care, right? And, and it was because like a lot of people really liked their health care and liked the fact that the ACA guaranteed that you would be covered for pre-existing conditions. Oh, yeah. I remember looking at some polling also from the Kaiser Family Foundation where they surveyed about all of the different components of Obamacare, and almost all of them were hugely popular, covered for pre-existing yes. conditions, the Medicaid expansion, the tax credits available for people buying individual coverage, um, the you know, shrinking of the Medicare donut hole issue, the kids staying on their parents' health insurance until uh, age 26. Like the actual components of the legislation did way better than the Obamacare brand <laughs> itself. Once people figured out what it did and, and what would get taken away if the law were repealed, they were like, hmm, that's a problem. The best thing for Obamacare or the ACA was the Trump Healthcare plan or the Republican healthcare plan that went down when John McCain put his thumb down. But people hated that. Hated, hated, hated that. I'm talking about my town halls at uh, hospitals in red areas. They hated it. Hated it. Everyone hated it because it didn't guarantee uh, you'd be covered if you had a pre existing condition. And that was insane. But 
the point I was making about 2020 is that these same suburban women, I guess that they're credited with 18 to a great extent, they liked the insurance they got from their workplace, right? Because basically their employer paid for the insurance or paid for a large percentage of the insurance. So it was cheap for them and it covered pre-existing conditions. It, co it covered everything that they needed to cover under the Affordable Care Act. So that's why I was really worried about the Medicare for All plan that Bernie was, was, was talking about and Elizabeth Warren too. Yeah, I think the issue is if you were creating a healthcare system from scratch, maybe you would do something that looks more like Medicare for all. Although, like I said, I quibble with, you know, some of the numbers related to it and completely getting rid of private insurance, whatever, given what other countries do. But maybe it would be something that covers, you know, most, if not all of the population with some supplemental insurance. But the problem is you're not starting from scratch. And there was so much opposition to the ACA kicking a few people off of their health insurance plans that were like objectively bad, right? These were plans that covered almost nothing, but they were cheap and they and it basically got retired or, or plans along those lines got retired by the ACA because they didn't really count as full insurance. There were so much opposition, so much media coverage of like the few people who were cranky about losing their insurance. Can you imagine how difficult it would be to kick the major vast majority of people off of their private insurance when they view it as pretty good. And surveys generally show that people are pretty happy with their employer-sponsored coverage. Now, maybe they would be happier with something else, but I think that there's a lot of resistance to, to just placing faith in the fact that, that something else will be better. And you're saying starting from scratch, basically... The origin of our system now was World War II, where you couldn't raise people's wages. So they got their health care through their employers, and the employers had it paid for, essentially, or got the deducted, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, no one in their right mind would design a system <laughs> that looks like ours, I think, um, if they were doing it from scratch. But we're kind of stuck with the system that we have and the, the political consequences that come from that, including people's resistance to just trust that government coverage will ultimately be better than what they have now. And then you have all of these other issues, like how do you pay providers? How do you pay hospitals? Does it look like how it looks it's now? It's complicated. It's, it's, it's very complicated. complicated. And, and if your primary goal is to just get as many people covered as possible with much more limited political resistance, probably something that looks like a public option is going to work better. It's still going to be complicated, as you yourself can attest, <laughs> based on the, the last time we tried to do this. But the country has moved in its opinion of, you know, whether government should be responsible for guaranteeing that people have access to health care coverage. And, and I, uh, that needs to be the work of this administration. I hope they can do it, which is expand uh, the coverage. We need to cover everybody in this country. And I know that you don't object to that. I think we're, we run out of time or are running out of time. So we need to say goodbye to each other. Can we say goodbye? Sure. Okay. Goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. 
I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.